On today's show, I have a conversation with a kick-ass self-defense coach who is an amazing storyteller. She's a martial artist who has worked as a security guard in one of the most high-stress environments in the world where people's behavior and actions can be completely unpredictable, surprising, and frequently dangerous. She's smart, articulate, full of insights, tips, and suggestions, and I know you are going to love this lively and wide-ranging conversation about women and safety. Here we go. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast, the show about the intersection of women's empowerment, embodiment, and self-defense, and what women need to know and do to enhance their physical, mental, and emotional safety. Here's your host, fourth-degree black belt and self-protection expert, Cynthia Jalakor-Rude. Welcome to the Born to Be a Badass podcast. I'm your host, Cynthia Jolikarud. Today, I am bringing on the show a really cool woman who has an incredible background of actual lived experience of having to go hands-on in altercations and violent situations, coupled with martial arts and self-defense. And she is just so much fun. I'm sure you're going to love our conversation. Sheena Williams has been teaching for 20 years, 10 of which have been dedicated to teaching self-defense. With lots of hands-on experience with violence and defending herself and others from violence, her expertise is absolutely undeniable. She is certified as an instructor in Krav Maga, striking and MMA, firearms, grappling, and more. She is the owner and lead instructor of Krav Maga Salem in Oregon, where they also teach Muay Thai, catch wrestling, knife fighting, Kali, and more. Welcome to the show, Sheena. Well, thank you so much for having me. And wow, thank you for the introduction. Really appreciate that. I'm so excited because you do so many things and you have, you know, a worldview that is informed from many different perspectives. And it just makes for like fun conversation for me, but also very educational, insightful conversation for the listeners. So I am super stoked. Yeah, I'm super excited to share some of my experiences and even share a couple crazy stories that people enjoy hearing. So, Awesome. Well, I like to start off with some kind of easy questions. Well, actually, I've been told lately they're not as easy as I thought they were, but they're fun questions <laughs> that we'll just use kind of as an icebreaker and then dive into the nitty gritty. So are you ready? I am ready. Let's do it. Okay. If you had to give up one of your five senses, which would it be? That's going to sound kind of silly, but smell. <laughs> smell would be the one I'd give up. Absolutely. So um, I live with uh, my husband, who is an avid uh, triathlon uh, trainer and a uh, couple of dogs. And I live out in the country. And so I smell a lot of, you know, cows and skunk and well, my husband in general. So I could give up smell with very little problem. <laughs> I agree. I was I was thinking about this uh, actually coincidentally as I was taking a shower, and I was thinking, you know, vision would be difficult, hearing would be difficult because I depend on those for knowing what's going on around me. Touch, I just never in a million years like that is so important to my life is that sense of touch, taste. Like I love the taste of things. Like I would hate to not be able to enjoy my food or a good glass of wine or something like that. But the sense of smell, I guess I would miss, like I wouldn't be able to smell 
spoiled milk or something like that. But also, <laughs> like you said, dirty clothes, sneaky people, sneaky dogs, skunked dogs. Oh, yeah. um, I once got my dog skunked at the same time. <laughs> yep, that was and poopy diapers. Oh, you know? yeah. Could be a blessing not have the sense of smell. I'd miss things like the smell of rain or, you know, spending the day at the lake, those kinds of things. But if it meant I never had to smell another one of those skunks in our area again, I think I'd be okay with it. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> so what's your favorite thing to do for fun? Oh, so many different things. Currently, my most favorite thing, and uh, if you could see me in person, it would be pretty obvious, but we have been granted a a lake access behind our house. So I spend uh, most of the time, and we kind of joke, my neighborhood is very tight-knit and close. Uh, We kind of joke that we've been kind of quarantined together. We do dinner probably three nights out of the week and that kind of stuff. And so we pretty much spend a lot of our time down at our, our lake kayaking and floating and swimming and hanging out and chit-chatting and it's just a really tight-knit group of people who work really hard to take care of each other and each other's kids and so that is currently my favorite thing to do is spend time with my neighbors as odd as that sounds they're wonderful people oh that's great yeah and I I like that for many of us this whole COVID situation is an opportunity to reconnect with many of the things that we actually do enjoy that maybe we have sort of shoved aside because we were quote too busy. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's great. I have a young five-year-old daughter and uh, all the, all the neighbors also have kids around the same age. So my daughter is having this picturesque uh, childhood where she's biking with friends in the front yard around the neighborhood. And then she's, you know, walking around kind of our little hiking trails and out in the lake with all the kids. And I mean, it just, I couldn't have asked for a better childhood for her to grow up even with a pandemic. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, what is your favorite self-care practice and has that changed during the pandemic? So for me, I'm a bit of a night owl. And if I'm not careful, I'll spend all night working on all the different projects I have. But I have really spent some time over the last year really focusing on self-care for myself. And I will take an hour after everybody goes to bed and pop open a book. And I've got a little special spot on the couch with a little reading light and that hour in the quiet reading whatever book. And I purposely, I read a lot of obviously self-defense books and books on certain topics that can be a little bit heavy, uh, but I purposely am spending time not in those category, categories and not in those books because I love to read and I generally find myself so busy that it's difficult to do. So I'm constantly on an audiobook or I'm running from one place to the next, but when I can focus and sit down, spend a little time reading that book and, and just relaxing in the quiet. It's, it's been just a game changer for me. I have to schedule it in, but it's been a game changer. I can relate to that. That was what saved me as being the mother of four kids was, you know, that late at night time where everybody's gone to bed and finally it's peaceful and nobody's asking for anything. <laughs> and um, it helps if you're a night owl yes. to be able to take advantage of time. But I also used to read at night too. In fact, when I moved a couple years ago, I called my library of books because I had accumulated close to 2000 paperbacks that were wow, on but they were like two rows and two like stacked on top of each other in every single shelf on the bookshelf. (laughs) (laughs) Nice by author, by genre and uh, by title within author. So (laughs) 
my mom was a librarian. So apparently that rubbed off. <laughs> At least you had great access to, to books everywhere. And sometimes that's the hardest part is you get a book that you're excited to read. And you still have three more on your list before it. <laughs> Three? Uh, oh, at least, right? I constantly have, I'm always purchasing books, but, uh, you know, they, they pile up and I'm like, okay, I can't wait to get that one. But I got to read those three first because I already ordered those and I was excited about those a month ago. <laughs> I can so relate. I, I have a huge, I don't have a stack anymore. I have a shelf. <laughs> oh, wonderful. What advice would you give young women today that you wish you'd had when you were in your 20s? Oof, duh. that could be a book. Speaking of books, <laughs> going to be, um, yes, good. Uh, you know, I think one of the most important things is to truly listen to people who are older than you. Right. So if you have an aunt or a, you know, family friend, or, I mean, I know it's hard to listen to mom at 20, right. It's hard to listen to mom in general. I, we all have been there, but if you can find somebody who is older than you, if they agree or are saying the same thing that a parent is telling you, listen, because so many times, especially at that age range, we kind of think we've got it all figured out and we kind of know what's going on. And we forget that, you know, uh, especially women have gone through similar experiences around that age range. And I, I know that situation might be unique to you, but it's going to be similar. There's really it's really not as unique as you think it is. And it's likely that somebody older than you has gone through a similar situation. Um, and even though they might not have the same viewpoint or they might not look at things the exact same way, they're going to help you be able to wade through that topic. Even if it's not, you know, even if it's it's not your mom that you want to talk to, it's just an older friend or cousin or family member or sister, whoever it might be, grab somebody slightly older, a little older, 10 years older if possible, and talk them through that situation because I guarantee you they're going to have good insight for you. You're not alone. This is not a unique situation, whatever it is you're facing. And grab somebody you trust. Make sure they're safe and talk to them about it because it will get you significantly further. Oh, man, that is pure gold. Yes, absolutely. And and you're right because <laughs> in, in kids, youngsters, reach a point where they don't really want to listen to parents. And one reason why I asked this question is because I have four kids, two daughters. And as my daughters were in their teens and entering their early 20s, I was wishing that there were people other than me that they could hear from and could learn from. And it was just hard to connect them. And plus they were shy. So they didn't like to ask a question or get somebody's attention on them. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to ask the questions in my podcast and create kind of a library of advice from extraordinary badass women that young women like my daughters can benefit from and learn from. And I'll tell you, you know, just from my experiences and the thing I've seen. So uh, if, for those of you who don't know, so I was part of a team, a really amazing team in the emergency room that I worked with who dealt with uh, folks who had specifically been sexually assaulted or in domestic violence situations. Because I was the only female officer working at the time I was, I was often pulled into these situations that involved young girls. Uh, and I won't specify how young, uh, but we're just going to say young at this point in time. And so many times I heard the same story over and over. I didn't want to tell my mom. I didn't want to tell my dad. I didn't want to get in trouble. And you know, I, if it feels wrong, it's wrong, guys. It's just that simple. 
I guarantee you, your parents would <laughs> would much, much uh, prefer that you call them and you tell them what's going on rather than something happened to you. Because unfortunately, as intelligent as you are, you only know what you know. And your parents do have a bit of, you know, a bit of years on you. Uh, and they can see things at a little bit different perspective. And again, I, I highly encourage parents to encourage their kiddos to have, like I said, whether it's a cousin or a family friend or somebody of a slightly older age who can help be that person to go to. Uh, it kind of just, it, it's a buffer and allows some safety for the, the younger, younger children to talk to somebody who's been in a similar situation. It's, it's so important. And I, I've got a lot of stories in that particular area that I could certainly share. Well, we're going to, we're going to dive into that too, but I just also want to capture that the other element of what was so important about what you shared is that often when you're in a situation, especially when you're young, you do think that you're the only one that's ever been there. You're the only one that's encountered Mm -hmm. a particular thing and nobody else could possibly understand going through. And when you talk to somebody else and you, you learn that you're not the only one, it isn't just you. It is such a relief to discover that there's nothing specific about you that caused it. You know, there was nothing wrong with you that actually what you're experiencing is something that many people do. And that's what allows you to develop some hope that like you can actually get out of the situation. You can move on, you can grow, you can heal. But it's that feeling that, you know, nobody's going to understand. Nobody's ever experienced this. It's something that keeps kids from actually connecting. Absolutely. And it's just, like I said, it's a lie. It's a lie that we tell ourselves because maybe we're embarrassed or we're scared. But the truth of the matter is, unfortunately, these situations from small situations, to much larger situations, they are not terribly unique and it's not something we highlight often enough. And so it's easy to feel isolated and alone and that nobody will understand you. But I'm here to tell you, seeing what I've seen, you're not alone. You're not alone and and people will understand and they will be there for you because they care about you. Uh, And so make sure you're reaching out and you're talking to those people you feel safe with. Yeah, that's awesome. All right. One last question in this section, then we're going to dive into the other meeting. (laughs) What is the most difficult decision you've ever had to make and what was your process for making it? Oof, my goodness. That one's one I would have to think about because I have had to unfortunately make a lot of difficult decisions in my lifetime. Um, Trying to think of one that would be really appropriate to tell. (laughs) You know, I think, and this is going to, this might hit home for some people. I think one of the most important decisions in my lifetime that I ever made and ever really came to a good conclusion on was recognizing that I and I alone I'm responsible for my happiness, right? doesn't matter what you come from in your upbringing. doesn't matter who you are connected to, whether that's, you know, a significant other or other family members. It doesn't matter who they are or who, what your situation is. You and you alone are responsible for your happiness. And the second that you can own that and really dive into that head first and recognize that you are the one who is going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps and be the successful person you want to be. And you're also the person who's going to hold you back from every dream you've ever had. Um, that extreme style of ownership in your own life and your own happiness changes the way that you wake up and do things every single day. And since I've had that realization and had that 
decision confidently planted in my brain that this is the decision I'm going to move forward with. This is the person I'm going to be. These are the choices I'm going to make because I own those things. My life has been drastically different. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's that's really interesting because that's not like a single point in time life decision. That is a how you live your life decision. Yeah. Yep. Oh, wow. That that is just <laughs> <laughs> That's great. You know, one of the one of my favorite coaches because I work with a lot of coaches, and I'm going to plug in a little bit. His name is Aaron Janetti, and uh, if you guys, if, if you're listening and you have a martial arts school, he's just fantastic. He runs a program called the uh, in, Instructor Elevation Program, and he took me through this program, which I enjoyed thoroughly. And he started off with something called a language lesson, which I thought was going to be kind of geeky and nerdy, and I didn't really need it, but. Once we got through the lesson, he started talking about the way that not only we talk to other people, but the way that we talk to ourselves. Uh, and there are different styles of the way we talk to ourselves. But my favorite phrase from this entire program was words create our stories and stories create our futures. So the stories that we tell ourselves are really what we build our lives and our successes on. So when you can really change the way not only you talk to other people, but more importantly, the way you talk to yourself, you'll find that success and the things that you want come easier. Mm, that's awesome. I I know Aaron. I got to train with him. He came to one of Coach Blower's combatives camps a few summers ago and did a whole active shooter scenario training for us. And then there was a small group of spear system coaches who went to a second training with him in Carlsbad, California. Uh, mm. That was mind-blowing. It was amazing. And I, I know that he's offering a whole bunch of other things now. So I'm really interested that you connected with him and that you've actually done this kind of training with him because he is a very gifted teacher. Yes, he is. One of the most positive people I've ever met. I did, a, I did an interview with him not too long ago and just I, I tease him all the time because I feel like everything that pours out of his mouth is a nugget of wisdom. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, it was a trip having him and Tony Blower in the same room. Oh, I can imagine. <laughs> same thing. You're just sitting there, you know, you walk out of the door and you're just like, holy cow, I have been absolutely flooded with amazing nuggets of gold. And it takes a long time to process when you get that that much awesome sauce in, in one <laughs> one's whack right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, and again, Aaron is just such a great person, but his instructor elevation program was, you know, another program that just really changed the way that I run my school and things that I do. And then again, like I said, at a fundamental basis, changed the way that I talk to myself. Right. Yeah. I mean, language is huge and the language that we use for ourselves is probably the most important piece of it. Absolutely. Well, how did you get into the world of martial arts? What was what was your path into that? <laughs> so I'm not going to lie. I have always been what we'll call um, scrappy. <laughs> uh, but I didn't really learn anything, just stuff that I used in, uh, you know, the little areas that I grew up in and uh, never been really afraid of a fight or anything along those lines. I did uh, personal training and sports specific coaching for about 15 years. Um, and I got to a place in my career where I was working with people who had no desire to actually get better, but I was being paid very, very well. Um, and most people will find within talking to me for about 10 minutes is I'm not somebody who does well without a clear cut goal to change the world. 
So when I got to that point and people didn't really need me, but they paid me well, it was no longer fulfilling. And I will never forget the day that I came home just bawling after working with this gal who really didn't want my help. She was just going to go see, you know, her uh, nip and tuck specialist as opposed to putting in the hard work. And I came home and I just, I bawled my eyes out to my husband. I'm like, this is not what I wanted to do with my life. This is not, I wanted to change people's lives and make them happier and healthier. And he said, babe, you do whatever you got to do. So I walked in the next day and I quit and I had no idea what was I, what I was going to do with the rest of my life. At that point in time, my husband was a corrections officer and he thought that I would be really good in a position like that. He said, you should try and dabble. So I ended up applying for a security position at, believe it or not, one of the busiest emergency rooms throughout the entire U.S. It is the busiest emergency room west of the Mississippi. And I ended up oddly getting hired. At the time, we had one other female officer uh, who moved to our dispatch position, and then quickly I was the only female officer. And I learned within about two weeks of being at this emergency room where I was dealing with people who were having mental mental breakdowns, people who were in psychosis, people who were high on methamphetamine, intoxicated, people who had been shot multiple times. I learned really, really quickly that the little eight-hour training they gave us for private security was not enough. <laughs> so my husband said, well, hey, here's what we're using. There's a school down the road. You should go check it out. I did. I really loved training there. It was so fantastic. My coaches were amazing, uh, but they ended up choosing a different life path and uh, decided to shut down. At that point in time, I'd become an instructor through them. And when they decided to shut things down, I asked, hey, is it possible if I just kind of keep things up and running on my own, seeing as though you guys have made me an instructor? And they said, yeah, do what you got to do. And so I kind of took it and and ran with it. So like I said, working working my time in private security, I have a whole slew of stories and information I could share after having been attacked with numerous weapons many, many times by many different people, hands-on situations, as well as teaching this and coaching this for now more than a decade. Wow. I guess one of my questions is, uh, so did you do martial arts training at some point along the path? So I didn't get involved in martial arts until I was actually smack dab in the middle of the position there at Salem Hospital. That's, like I said, two weeks in, I figured out that uh, my training that I had gotten was just not enough. So that's when I started seeking out training and I ended up doing Krav Maga then. Before that, I, I hadn't done anything. That's interesting because what I was thinking was that you probably had some sort of training first, but the fact that you basically learned while you were on a job where you had to use the <laughs> kind of yes yes <laughs> as a matter of fact the first time that I was attacked by somebody with a knife I had been training in Krav Maga for approximately three months that's not not a whole lot of time no <laughs> did you had you done thankfully had you done knife defenses at that point in time we had been introduced to them so is that what you used in that situation? Yes. Yeah? Yes, I did. I use a very standard Krav Maga worldwide knife defense with the defense and the counter. Of course, because this person was a patient, I wasn't allowed to hit them. But I was able to readjust what I was doing. Um, I was able to block it. I was able to get a hold of this gal. So the story, this is the story. Basically, I got called to this. When I arrived in the room, she was actively cutting herself. I went into the room in your traditional Krav Maga stance, my hands up in my my good position. Ma'am, please put down the knife. And she turned the knife in her hand and swung at me. 
I was able to do the traditional 360 defense, obviously not uh, striking the patient, but gaining control of her arm and being able to slide the knife out of the room. At that point in time, obviously, I'm being bled on every which direction. and I'm able to grab my radio and call for backup and was able to get somebody back in there to help me and get more staff. Uh, to help restrain the individual and then uh, suture and, and, and sedate because uh, obviously she was uh, in a place where she was suicidal. <laughs> but yeah, like I said, I, at that point in time, I'd only had about three months of training. My instructors were phenomenal from the get-go. So, uh, and I was able to pick things up relatively quickly. So um, it all worked out for the best in that first three months. <laughs> so did you know when you were called to that room that she had a knife? No, as a matter of fact, she'd been brought in by the local sheriff's office. Um, and one of the first things we do when somebody has suicidal ideations is you remove all of their personal belongings because you really don't know what's in there. Uh, they're provided uh, a paper set of scrubs so that, you know, they can't use it to do further damage to themselves. And then we use a metal detecting wand to make sure that they don't have anything that I'm not seeing. So um, I, I personally went through the entire process. Uh, the sheriff had said that they had also done a pat down. So at this point in time, this, this individual had been checked twice. I will tell you that the pocket knife that this individual had, had it uh, smuggled in what I'll refer to as a nether region. Oh, dear. Um, I'm sure y'all can use your, in, your imagination on that one. Wow, because I was going to ask you, like, how the heck did she get a knife into the hospital? And that's pretty darn... Yeah. Uh, I would love to say that was the last time I got to see that. Oh, man. It was not. Well, I'm impressed with the fact that, you know, not only did you not go in the room with the prior knowledge that she had a weapon that was a knife, but you actually went in the room thinking that she didn't have any weapons because of the screening process. And so your oh shit moment was not just, you know, oh shit, she's cutting herself. <laughs> oh shit, she's cutting herself with a knife. Where the hell did that come from? Oh shit, it's coming at me. Yes. Pretty big moment to get through. Do you remember how you got through that moment? Or was it just that even though you'd only had three months of training and only a teeny weeny exposure to how to deal with knives that you had done enough that you had a mental blueprint and you knew what to do and, and just jumped into action. So I, I'm going to chalk it up to being young and dumb. <laughs> I went, I, I, I mean, she was actively, actively cutting herself when I arrived on scene. So we knew she had the knife, but my job was to make sure that patients, staff and visitors were all safe. So my first initial response was to get in and save her from herself. I probably should have waited for additional staff. Uh, there was a CNA on the outside. Now that I'm older and wiser, that's absolutely what I should have done. But being young and wanting to help people, since that's my driven goal, I went into the room sooner than I should have in the hopes to save her. Again, it, it was one of those things that as soon as I went into the door, in the back of my mind, I went, oh, she's turning that on me. Oh, no, this is not good. And thankfully, because my instructors had really drilled in that 360 movement, um, I was able to defend myself. Uh, had had this been me talking to one of my students, I would have maybe suggested something <laughs> different. But, uh, you know, I'm sure that you're aware once you start training, you hit about that three month mark and you're feeling pretty good. And I think some of that, truthfully, honestly, as dumb as that was in that situation for myself to do, I think part of that was okay, I just want to help. I just want to make sure this girl is okay. You know, she's coming because she needs help. 
And that was my, my guide. And so again, being older, being a little wiser, I now know there are other options that I could have used and been a little bit more patient, but I was just so eager to be help, helpful. Um, I do remember looking at that knife coming at me thinking, is this really happening? There was that moment kind of where you get that freeze where you go, okay, I can't, is this real life? <laughs> but thankfully, I was able to survive it without, you know, any, any additional wounds or uh, anything along those lines. And we were able to help that individual. That's great. What, what other stories come to mind about your, your time in the emergency room and some of, some of the times that you had to deal with unexpected situations? Oh, I have so many of them, really. Uh, you know, one of the things I like to talk about with my students is edge weapons in particular. And sometimes when we think about edge weapons, the only thing that comes to mind are things like knives or box knives. A couple of the, I always tell these couple of stories because it's important to kind of give that mindset. An edge weapon can be so many different things. I, I tell two stories about some of the worst stabbings I, or edge weapons attacks that I've ever seen. And the first one was uh, from a flathead screwdriver. So husband had been in the hot tub with the neighbor when wife came home and discovered them and was very upset and in a rage grabbed the closest thing she could find, which was a flathead screwdriver. And several times, less than 20 times, but more than 15 times, stab this individual all the way like we normally see with normal stab wounds right is the human body is like a sewing machine it's going in and out either up to down or down to up or it's slashing um if you don't have any prior training it's just a response that we have and she had just like that sewing machine gone up and then down and so he had been stabbed several times just with a flathead screwdriver and that's not something we traditionally think about as an edge weapon uh the other situation that i tell people about is one of the gnarliest edge weapon attacks I ever saw was a couple of guys getting into it, doing the fun group monkey dance type of, you know, pounding the chest. I'm the bigger guy. I'm the bigger guy. One of them grabbed a can of soda that was unopened and bashed the other one across the face. Now that's bad enough as it is. However, as soon as he bashed the other guy with that can of soda, that aluminum can then opened up and then he continued to smash this kid in the face over and over and over, just mangling this poor kid's face. It was pretty gruesome. So when we think about edge weapons, it's important to think beyond just a knife or a machete or things that we traditionally think is an edge weapon, because so many things can be an edge weapon. That's really interesting to, to think about for two reasons. One is when we talk about affordances, you know, when we look at something we often just look at it as the thing that it is. We don't look at it as the things that it could be. And so most people would look at an aluminum pan as being a receptacle to hold a drink and would never think <laughs> it as, you know, like a club to start with or <laughs> an edged weapon. You know, it just wouldn't occur. And I, yeah. I always try to talk to people and say, use your imagination and don't worry if something that you come up seems really far-fetched because you need to give your mind the opportunity to recognize that sometimes things can be way different from the way they, quote, normally are in the world. And that can be an advantage for you if you can think that way. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's really important to realize that when you are looking at threats and potential dangers it's easy also to just assume that something is harmless when actually it might not be. Yes, absolutely. 
absolutely. <laughs> so, th- I mean, that's just a couple of the stories that I, I like to tell that kind of change people's mindsets. But really, I could I could go on for for hours about some of the stories I have. They're they're pretty crazy. But what I did find is uh, most of your your listeners, I'm sure, have read plenty of Rory Miller's books, and and I find that Rory's writing has been pretty spot on, even though he comes from a corrections background, you know, even spanning into a place like an emergency room where you're dealing with people who are high or intoxicated or in just severe emotional states. I I can't tell you the amount of times that I've had to pull a family member off of somebody who is coding and I have to pull them off that family member so that the doctors can get to that person (laughs) to try and save their lives because, you know, emotions, they, they do very crazy things to us. We don't think when we're in those places. And so we, we tend to do some dangerous things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you also, you mentioned something as you were describing that environment, which was that you, when you were dealing with the woman with the knife, you weren't allowed to hit her because she was the patient. And I think this is mm-hmm. really important to talk about because uh, Tony Blower talks about the three fights. There's you versus you, which is your, your mental conversation, your self-talk, your uh, giving yourself permission to take action and and all of the things where you have to actually be your own ally, not a, not one of your opponents <laughs> in order to mm-hmm. get into the fight and take action. The second fight is you versus the opponent. And the third fight is you versus the system. And the system could be anything from, you know, the legal system and law enforcement to what you're talking about, which is sort of the rules of conduct, the acceptable actions that you're allowed to take in your role. And so I'm curious like, what in your environment the rules were for you to be able to engage with a violent threat. And you, did you have to learn how to articulate what was happening and why you did what you did? And like, how did you navigate through that part of the dynamic of being involved in situations in the ER? So the goal always is to treat people with dignity and respect and to kind of meet them where they're at. Uh, We were at the time uh, using a system called PROACT, which is the Professional Assault Crisis Training System, which uh, has some really wonderful elements to it. My personal opinion is it's a great system, just simply incomplete. And that's okay. There are some phenomenal psychological uh, tips and tricks and understandings uh, that I think are critical for when you're dealing with people. And one of those things is first and foremost, something called the crisis model, right? We all kind of start off on a baseline and I always use kind of a silly example. So bear with me as I talk about it. We have a baseline. So think about how you generally wake up first thing in the morning, maybe pre-COVID, how we got ready for work, right? We kind of have a place that is our normal for us. Now, Let's take that baseline and instead of waking up and taking that time to have your first cup of coffee in the morning, uh uh-oh, your alarm didn't go off. Yikes. Immediately, my stress level is up, right? I'm moving a little bit faster. I'm breathing a little bit faster. And at that point in time, I'm away from that baseline. So it's easy to upset me a little bit more. I'm not really paying as good attention as I should. This is how we generally do things like leave our lunch at home, right? That kind of stuff. Now, let's make it even worse. Now I'm in the car. I'm trying to get to work, all that fun stuff. And gosh darn it, if I don't hit every flipping red light on the way to work, right? We have all been there and we understand the stress that that causes. Now we get to work, right? We are now escalated in that stress level and really far away from our baseline. Now let's hit crisis. Now maybe our boss says, hey, Sheena, this is the third time you've been late in the last year. You're fired. 
Now where am I? My cognitive, my cognitive abilities are absolutely tanked. I don't understand anything very well. One of my favorite stories, my mom used to work for Department of Revenue in another state, and they worked in a circular building. This guy, this is his exact same story. He got to work. He was late again. The boss has fired him. And out of a stress response, he started running around the building, which is a circular building with an elevator in the, in the middle, running around going, you can't fire me if you can't catch me. <laughs> because he was stressed and that ultimate stress response. We're not thinking realistically. We're no longer thinking in that social brain. We're in that survival mode. And so we don't think like a normal person. And so oftentimes when you can recognize people in these stages, there are different ways to address that cognitive ability to potentially bring them back down. Now, once we hit crisis, thankfully crisis can only last for so long because it's a high energy state. Beyond that, we have our post-crisis depression and de-escalation. Now, we have to be very cautious because those people who don't have a post-crisis depression, and my law enforcement friends will understand that, this is the guy in the back of your car snotting and tearing up, and I shouldn't have hit her, I knew I should have done that, right? That, that's one we see a lot in law enforcement. But we, most of us will have a post-crisis depression. If you have somebody, a subject or a significant other or somebody you're dealing with who never, never shows a post-crisis depression, that's something to take note of. But you'll see people de-escalate and then hit that post-crisis depression. The trick to remember, especially if you're law enforcement, EMS, emergency services, right, is that when do those units get called? Well, they don't get called at crisis. They get called after the crisis has happened and we have started to de-escalate. So what does law enforcement or EMS show up and do? They bang on that door and boom, we might be triggered right into crisis again. Uh, so again, recognizing that I'm going to have to adapt my language in order to get through that cognitive ability, which is severely limited at this point in time. So that's one of the first things that we really studied and, and taught through our security teams, our psychological teams our trauma teams and nursing staff. That's just one of the things that we taught on a regular basis, as well as addressing things like developmental age, right? You probably, anybody who's listening probably has a friend who might be, you know, 29, 30, but still acts maybe like they're 18, right? Even though they're 30, we have to treat them and meet them where they're at. And then when we start digging into this, because this is an emergency room, we have people with true severe mental health. And so you have to meet them at where they're at and not make expectations based on their age or anything else that they're dealing with. And this is a three-day course that we would teach on restraining people, recognition, how to de-escalate yourself, how to de-escalate others. Um, and it's a, it's a really in-depth course. Like I said, the only thing that's really missing is the physical portion. And so once you have that in place, you can address people kind of depending on where they're at and do your best to, again, treat people with dignity and respect to keep those situations as de-escalated as possible. However, when it would come to a hand-to-hand -hand situation, your goal was not to hurt the patient. That person was a patient. They're likely there because it was the worst day of their life or one of the worst days of their life. We're just simply looking to restrain that individual so we can give them the health care that they are in desperate need of, whether they recognize that's what they need or not. So many times we had to, we would have to hold people down who were in the middle of, of dying from an overdose, who didn't want our help. But whether they wanted our help or not, they weren't in a mental state to be able to actually make that determination. And it certainly was not in our cards to just let somebody kill over from an overdose. So, uh, you know, there's a lot of factors that came into how we responded to each individual patient. But truthfully, it was just making sure that they were as healthy as we could, could leave them. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And it's fascinating to hear 
the depth that the training went into to give you the kinds of tools that you need to recognize what's going on and to not make assumptions and you know make plans based on faulty assumptions and uh, yeah you know that's that's huge there's one thing that you said that I would like you to expand on also well there's like 10 things but <laughs> we don't have 5 hours so you mentioned that you were taught how to deescalate yourself and how to deescalate others and this is something that is for me when I started teaching self-defense, that was the thing where I said, I feel the least knowledgeable and the least competent in this area. So I'm always really curious when I talk to people who've had great training in that to find out what are their tips? Like, how do you do that? How do you deescalate yourself? And then how do you deescalate other people when they are in an agitated, adrenalized, aggressive state? So for yourself, and this is this is something I used to be a proactive instructor. I taught for several years, and my assistant instructor Michael, him and I, we were teachers together. So uh, this is something I've been teaching on for a long time. But as far as de-escalating yourself, especially when we're in the middle of the situation, you have to remember you may only have a split second. So it really comes back to healthy grounding and recognizing what your purpose is. So it's something that needs to be able to be done in a split second. You can't leave the area for whatever reason. In my case, because that was my job, I couldn't leave the area. If you can leave the area, leave. But if you are in a place where you can't leave the area, then these things need to ground you to what the purpose of the situation is. So this might be a mother dealing with a teenager who's gotten a, a little just mouthy and out of control. And, you know, you're, you're wanting to ground them till kingdom come. Um, it can be any number of different situations. It's all about you personally and what helps you to refocus on what your ultimate goal is. So for me, I know that my plan always was to take a deep breath and hold on to it for a split second. I would push my shoulders down because I know when I get stressed, I roll my shoulders towards my ears. And then I would simply place my hand on the front of my belt and that recognition for me on the front of my belt was kind of twofold. First of all, it reminded me of what my position is. My job was not to fix that person, to make things better for that person. It wasn't to do anything else except for perform my role as security for the place that I worked at to keep patients, visitors, and staff safe. That was my goal, right? That was So that touched my belt was my key point that was my key reminder as to what my role and responsibility was the pushing of my shoulders was to kind of check my ego in its own way and the breath for me purposefully right was so that I could clear whatever was happening in my mind so I had a very clear plan as to why I was doing those three things so generally if you can find those three things that you can do quickly I mean think about how quickly those three things can be done and they have purpose for you I would say write those three things down as your goal, right? Because once you write things down, they stick a little bit better and they're a little bit more real. The thing with this is that I can't give you just one way. You have to find a way that works for you, right? As to what is your goal and what is your purpose. So it's something that I would encourage each and every individual to explore because it is going to be different for everybody. I love that. And and I love that it starts with breath because that whole concept of using conscious breathing as a way to navigate through the fear response is something that I've become really fascinated by. And mm-hmm. you didn't really frame it that way, but that's exactly what you were doing. It was like, okay, I'm 
I want to be here and now and present and not be spiraling off into future thinking about what might happen or, you know, getting sucked into it. I want to be really present. And uh, I think those three, those three little pieces are, you know, physiological, mental, and emotional pieces. Absolutely. They're all, they're all rooted in grounding of a person. Right. And so yeah. we could, you and I could probably go into great depth of, of grounding, what that looks like, what that sounds like, what that feels like, why it's so important. I mean, you know, uh, we, we could probably talk at great length, but those three things, something, you know, that breath is huge, checking yourself and then physically touching something as a reminder are all three great ways, something you can do quickly. But again, right. For me, it was my belt. Maybe for you, it's, you know, your heart or, you know, something along those lines. There's so many variations. There's not one way. Mm -hmm. Well, and of course, in classic true self-defense coach style, that is true about pretty much everything we ever talk about. It's like we can (laughs) give you options and ideas, but ultimately it's a very personal choice to about what you're going to do. So absolutely. I, I, absolutely. So then how what did you teach people in terms of how to de-escalate others? So the first thing I would really teach people is is to recognize kind of that uh, crisis model and to be able to try and determine where they were at in that model. If they were at crisis, if they were at the peak of their emotional position at that point in time, I knew that cognitively they had very little ability to to be rational and understand. I do know at that point in time, though, the sweetest words to our ears is our own name. So anytime I could, I would keep short phrases. Cynthia, I'm trying to help. Things like that. Right, very short phrases. If they were in a place where they were now away from that baseline or escalating, I have more of an opportunity to try and rationalize or deter or draw people back down by, you know, being more understanding or open to conversation. A lot of it comes from our body language. We say a lot with the way we move our body. We also say a lot with our tone. Uh, It's very easy in a stressful situation for somebody to get yelled at and then yell back something like, hey, do you want a sandwich? Or we could try things like, (laughs) hey, what if I just got you a sandwich, right? Sometimes depending on if we can identify where they're at in that crisis model and understand their ultimate goal. If somebody is frustrated, right, it's very easy to give somebody a choice to help them feel like they have more control because that's often the time, that's often why people are feeling frustrated. If they're fearful, Right. If they and we know what fearful behavior looks like. If they look like they're fearful, I'm going to give them as much space as I can. I may even crouch down away from them, close to, you know, away from a door so that they feel like they've got an exit if they need it. I'm going to talk a little bit softer, but recognizing where they are is huge, right? Not just in the crisis model, but recognizing their emotions and their body language because I can tailor my language and my body language to either give them more control or make them feel less fearful or change the tonation of my voice. It's all about meeting them where they are at emotionally and mentally. Yes. Wow. That's, that's awesome. Thank you. That I'm going to have to listen back through to this a couple of times and digest (laughs) some of that. It's, It's great. That's very helpful perspective and some pretty simple tools. I, I especially like giving choices, you know, that's something as a parent that you learn pretty quickly is 
instead of asking yes, no questions to ask open-ended or, or not necessarily open-ended, but to, to offer choices where either choice is okay with you is a great way to actually get movement away from a stuck point. Yeah. You know, I had one situation where we had a gentleman come in and this gentleman was rather large, um, uh, very, very big. Now I'm going to preface this with letting everybody know I'm five foot one. So I'm rather large myself, but this gentleman was, uh, I don't know, probably six foot two. And I would say easily 200 pounds, just solidly built. Uh, this guy was a, a veteran um, who had been in a situation where an IED had gone off close to him and he had some wounds and he had some severe PTSD. And for whatever reason, this gentleman had been drinking that night and something had triggered something. Friends had called the police. Police had shown up, brought him down to be psychiatrically evaluated. And at the time, I was the only, again, the only female. And the rest of the officers that were on with me that night happened to be large, big, brooding men. So in that situation, because of of, uh, the patient who was there, it was very, it was one of those situations where the officers were trying to be helpful, but it really just sounded like they were being argumentative and it wasn't on purpose. It was just, they were very intimidated by this guy and I don't blame them. And sometimes, especially officers or people on the front lines, they confuse being intimidated with feeling intimidated. And that was a classic case uh, as the officers were feeling intimidated because this guy was big. And there were occasions where he was purposely trying to intimidate them. And they were getting to a point where they're like, uh, how are we going to, you know, take care of this guy? You know, he needs to be sedated. This is what's going to, and I just stepped in. And I was like, guys, let me, let me give it a shot. Right? Let me, let me just try. So <laughs> in my real intimidating five foot one stature, I simply walked into the room and sat down at the chair. And he looked at me like I was crazy. This patient just stared at me, right? He'd been yelling at every other officer, challenging every other male that walked in. But I walked in and I just sat down. And he kind of just stared at me for a minute. And I just looked at him and very quietly in my calmest, most monotone voice, I said, you look like you're having a rough day. And he said, you know what? I really am. So well, why don't you come sit down and talk with me about it? So he did and sat down and one of the officers who was kind of lingering around, you know, this patient kept looking back over his shoulder at these officers. And I just said to the to the patient, I said, hey, are you hungry? He was like, yeah, I'm really hungry. So I asked the big officer, I said, hey, would you go grab him a sandwich and a juice? The officer took off and the patient kind of smirked at me. And I said, well, tell me what's going on. And him and I just kind of started having a conversation and he calmed down. The officer brought back in the sandwich and kind of gave us some space. And before you knew it, I kind of introduced him to the physicians and the psychiatric evaluators. And at one point in time, he told me I reminded him of his sister. So, of course, he's not going to beat me up. Right. But it was that that was the complete opposite of what he had been getting. Right. The complete opposite of what he was giving off. And it was such a shift that it brought his demeanor and his whole attitude to a complete shift. And so sometimes. Uh, sometimes that works really well. Sometimes it doesn't, but that was one of those times where it was really successful, where I completely, he's yelling at everybody, shouting at everybody. And I just walked in, sat down, no puffed up chest, no ego, and just said, Hey, you look like you're having a rough day. I said it very calmly and very quietly. And we were able to resolve the situation without having to, you know, deploy any time of chemical restraint. So, uh, it worked out best for everybody. Mm, That's a great story because it really, highlights that you sometimes in a situation where you need to de-escalate it, you need to behave in a way that is 
maybe not actually you, or you need to be able to take on a role that just fits that situation. And you were able to do that. But what you also did was something that Rory Miller talks about in, I think it's in conflict communication in the book, but certainly in his courses, which is you know, when people are, are on a script where it's kind of known like, the dynamics are going to be, and like, this is my role, that's your role, this is how it's going to play out. You know, you're kind of doomed if you're, if you're hooked into the script, but if you can disrupt the script, then sometimes, often, you can actually change the direction that the interaction is going. And, and you completely changed the script that was on. <laughs> and yeah, and you know, I didn't realize that that's what I'd done until many years later when I read Rory's book. But you know, I saw the escalation and where this was going, right? And it—that's it, really what it was—was was a script, and these these groups were just escalating off each other and feeding into each other. And you're going to do what I tell you, you know, you're going to do what I tell you. And I went, well, well, thanks. Let's just try this. See if this works. <laughs> right? Sometimes, especially as people who are martial artists really badly in the firearms community, right? We have a tool. And so that seems to be the only tool we're able to use when that's just not the case, right? The most powerful weapon that you have is the six inches between your brain. Yes. Or you're not brain. Thank you. Ah, Silly me. Yes. Six inches between your ears. That is the most powerful tool that you have when it, when it comes to any type of self-defense situation. If you can talk your way out of it, if you can, you know, buy that guy a beer so that it gives you some space so you can exit, right? If you can talk somebody down just by behaving a different way as opposed to getting caught in those scripts, it makes a huge difference. Yeah. Amen to that. That's awesome. (laughs) Well, I'm curious, like when you, so you've got a school where you teach self-defense that you've been running for about 10 years, I think. And like, at what point did you decide that you wanted to do that? And then how do you navigate through the distinctions between teaching martial arts and teaching self-defense? So that's an excellent question. So yeah, uh, so I began teaching that or taking over that school back in 2012. At that point in time, I had become an instructor at the school that I was teaching at. And my instructors kind of decided to take a, a different life path and kind of just handed me the reins and let me run with it, which was phenomenal. At that point in time, I had stopped working private security solely that I could focus on this um, and just kind of make sure that ends meet. I went part-time working loss prevention, which is a whole nother story. Um, (laughs) But uh, it started off as just Kravagat specifically. And then I was certified through the Boss Rutten striking Dutch kickboxing and MMA system. So we would have separate classes for that. And so we still have those classes separated where we have a striking class or a Muay Thai class where you can work those specific skills. But we remind our students on a regular regular, uh, occasion. We tell them, listen, right, drills are to build skills. Skills are not fighting. So we're building to develop a good skill set. And then we can use those skill sets in our self-defense class. Those things are to couple with and help with. It's like, hey, you know, that vehicle that you drive might be absolutely beautiful and cherry red, but it's nothing without the motor. (laughs) Yes. So that's kind of how we break it down to our students. And again, you know, we teach Kali, we teach knife fighting, we teach firearms. Um, I am so honored and proud to be an integrative defense strategies uh, affiliate. They are doing 
groundbreaking work in the firearms community. And I've been a part of a lot of different firearms worlds and uh, what Todd Fossey and his team are doing are just second to none. And I, I love being affiliated with them. So I talk about them pretty regularly as I do with, of course, 500 Rising. Okay. I'm going to show my ignorance and ask you to talk about what that program is because I have not heard of that and it sounds cool. Is that Integrative Defense Strategies? <laughs> so they're a, a phenomenal program. And so uh, Todd Fossey, who is the uh, gentleman who runs it, he is really integrating hand-to-hand combat with firearms. Uh, formerly, he's a Krav Maga instructor. Uh, he trains in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Uh, he studies under world-renowned famous MMA coach Greg Nelson. But the entire goal is to be able to merge hand-to-hand with your firearm. If you're somebody who carries concealed carry, you need to know that most defensive gun usages happen in under six feet. And what's terrifying is that a lot of people spend a lot of time on the range plinking at paper at 21 yards. And that's just not realistic because that's not how a fight happens. However, it's also not safe to train on a range with a live firearm grappling with somebody. So they utilize something called a CERT gun, which comes from Next Level Training. They're based out of Washington. And uh, the CEO and engineer of all their stuff is, is Mike Hughes, and he's formerly of Top Shot, and he's incredibly intelligent. I, he's got a gigantic brain. Uh, but the CERT gun is weighted similarly to a live firearm. Uh, you can drop the magazine so you can practice reloading, but it gives you live feedback immediately because you can pull the trigger, and all you get is a, a little red light. And so it tells you exactly where you're hitting your target and gives you that immediate feedback, which is so important. So we can actually train. I mean, we violate NRA safety rules left and right on purpose, but we do it in a safe environment where everybody has been checked to make sure they don't have any type of tools on them whatsoever. But it is significantly more realistic than going out to your range and thinking steel. It's not to negate that, right? What that is called is marksmanship. Right. And marksmanship and defensive gun usages are not the same thing. And unfortunately, in the firearms community, there are a lot of people who mislabel their marksmanship classes as self-defense. And then again, like I said, you're you're hitting steel or paper from 10 yards. That's still not self-defense. We need to be able to work through grappling distance. We need to be able to work from, you know, traditional grabs or punches or a types of attacks that we see at those distances. And if I don't have any hand to hand combat skills, I'm not going to be able to draw appropriately into a correct position without allowing that attacker to recognize that I'm armed with a firearm. And now I'm the one who's introduced that lethal weapon into this fight. Interesting. Okay. I am, I'm going to do some research because that sounds right up my alley. (laughs) It's phenomenal training. I know that they are working real hard to build a large-scale uh, scenario training sometime soon. Obviously, COVID has put a little bit of a damper in it. But, you know, uh, I, I really cannot recommend Todd Fossey and the Integrative Defense Strategies Program if you are somebody who is interested in, in firearms. We've got affiliates all over the U.S. Some great, great programs out there. That is awesome. Uh, well, since we're touching on firearms, I would like to know, like, in what situations do you think a woman should learn to use a gun? And what are some of the things that women should know about them? Oh, I have a very simple and probably infuriating answer to your question. Women carry a firearm for two reasons. You want to and you practice with it. <laughs> 
If you don't want to, there are other tools that you can utilize. They may not be as effective, but if you're nervous and you're scared of it, you won't practice with it, you won't train with it, you don't know how to use it, then you become a liability yourself. So if you're interested in it and you practice in it, you want to carry it, do it. Just get additional training. If you are terrified of that firearm, you are going to allow that firearm to dominate you. And that's where mistakes and negligent discharges happen, right? Think of it as, as a large dog, right? If you don't give it the right training, if you don't take care of it, if you don't know how to work with it, what's that dog going to do? It's going to run all over you, right? <laughs> so it's important that you do the training, right? You're comfortable with it. You recognize, you know, how to carry you uh, and you work with it on a regular basis. Absolutely. Absolutely. However, a concealed carry class by itself is not enough. You also have to spend a lot of time educating yourself on the laws in your area and what that looks like. Again, martial artists are bad about this. Firearms folks are the worst. Just because you have that tool doesn't mean it's legal for you to use that tool. That firearm is the last line of defense, the very last, not your first. And unfortunately, we see all sorts of keyboard warriors all over social media who respond to everything, just carry a gun. Well, just carrying a gun doesn't make you any more dangerous or any more lethal if you haven't trained with it, if you're not comfortable with it, and if you don't know how to use it. Yes. And just possessing one doesn't mean that it's accessible to you in the moment when you need it either. Correct. And I don't know about you, but at no point in time in my life have I been comfortable with just trying to figure it out in the middle of a situation, <laughs> especially when it comes to lethal force. One thing that doesn't get spoken enough in the martial arts and firearms community is that a lot of the times when we have a violent encounter, there's something beyond that called litigation. That's not just criminal litigation. There's also civil litigation. If you listen to Andrew Brunker, read his phenomenal book called um, The Law of Self-Defense, he talks about, on average, a criminal investigation right, will run you average three years and $300,000. Yes, that is that aspect of you versus the system that uh, Coach Blower talked about. Yeah. yeah, that's one piece of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is why I'm a huge advocate and partner with the United States Concealed Carry Association because they are self-defense insurance. So whether I have to use my hands or, a, you know, I figure out a tool in the process or I have to use my firearm, heaven forbid, right, I know at least I have legal coverage. If I'm smart enough and I'm concerned enough to be able to get this training, just like anything else, I should be insured and ready for the worst case scenario. Having the training is not worst case scenario. Using the training is worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you sort of taking that little diversion because I know that there are a lot of women who, for example, are coming out of domestic abuse situations. but other situations too. And you're right. Like the sort of knee jerk advice from people is we'll just get a gun. And what that totally ignores is that you have to be mentally, emotionally, and psychologically willing to go to a lethal force level in order Absolutely. to. And there are a lot of women who aren't. And Correct. it's a personal, again, it's one of those personal choices, but you have to be willing to really do the work to figure out, like, am I willing to fight back if my life is in danger and actually do something that could kill somebody? Um, and if Absolutely. Absolutely. 
down that path. Yeah. And, you know, on, on that subject, as far as, you know, people getting out of domestic violence situations, you know, that I have run into this several times where people say, well, I could never shoot somebody, but I carry a large knife and I have to sit down and explain to somebody what that looks like to have to use a knife or a baseball bat to the point of lethality where a firearm. So I will be the first person to tell you, right. If you, if, if somebody is shot, that does not mean immediately that they're dead. As a matter of fact, you can be hit lethally fatally and still continue to fight for 17 to 20 seconds on adrenalized blood alone that's not factoring in things like methamphetamine pcp alcohol right so 17 to 20 seconds is still a very very long time especially if somebody is armed now i also hear often well just shoot them in the head well again only 50 percent of headshots are effective so there are so many misconceptions when it comes to firearms however there are more misconceptions when it comes to things like knives uh, bats, tasers, pepper spray. Yeah, there are so many misconceptions and it drives me absolutely nuts. So starting off the bat, if you're somebody who thinks that you would much be, uh, be better prepared with a knife or an edge weapon than a gun, I just need you to know that not only are you going to have to be significantly closer to that attacker, just because you slice somebody once doesn't mean they die. As a matter of fact, you can puncture them fatally and it can take them minutes to bleed out. So if this person is significantly larger than you or happens to be armed, you're looking at a significant amount of time. And if you have never had to fight somebody for even 30 seconds, it is significantly more difficult than you think of. Uh, when we talk about a baseball bat, uh, a lot of people, I'm going to get a little graphic and I apologize. If, you, if, you've got a, if your stomach is easily upset, you might want to skip forward about 30 seconds. But trying to bludgeon someone, break bones, hit somebody, in the, bashing somebody in the head, the sounds that the body makes when being bludgeoned are things that will haunt you in your dreams for the rest of your life. It is not an easy thing to do. Not to mention, again, just because you bludgeon somebody or break a bone does not mean they stop fighting. And there are so many misconceptions that way. Pepper spray. Pepper spray, we have to remember, right? Pepper spray gets everywhere. So if you are in an enclosed environment, you are likely to have to battle with that pepper spray too. If this is somebody who's already been pepper sprayed previously in their life, they're likely to be able to fight through it. When we talk about tasers, for whatever reason, on TV and movies, we see tasers, quote unquote tasers, that are actually stun guns. And as soon as they touch somebody, they pass out for an hour. That is a lie. That is not what happens at all. When a taser, and a stun gun in particular, before I ever had any training, my best friend at the time, he thought it was really a clever idea to get one. I had no idea he had one. He touched me in the leg with it, and my blind knee-jerk reaction was I backhanded him. And I had zero training, because as soon as that comes off you, it's done. It hurts for a split second, but then it's done. When we talk about tasers um, that uh, utilize cartridges that are supposed to be used at greater distances, you have to remember that those prongs are set up so that one flies true, and the other one is trying to get a little bit of distance. Because the further away those prongs are at each other, the more effective that tase is. So if you deploy that taser at two feet, it's not going to be very effective. If you deploy it at 10, that's not realistic. Attacks don't happen at 10 feet. So like any tool, tools have a failure point. So those are a couple things to keep in mind when it comes to tools. I, I get really frustrated when people have this mindset that, uh, you know, this one tool is going to be the be all end all. And it's just not the case. Tools fail. Yes. And I think if you want to use tools, it's great to have them. 
as different options for different scenarios. But as you said, with the firearm, you absolutely positively have to train with them and you have to do scenario-based training with them, not nice little static drills. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, Ryan Hoover, who I've done some training with, I think he said it my favorite way, right, is that you're not a gunfighter. You're not a knife fighter. Be a fighter with a tool, right? So be a fighter with a gun. Be a fighter with a knife. Be a fighter with whatever tool it is you choose. But learn the fundamentals and the principles of fighting first. Yes. Well, I also have to say that this is why I absolutely fucking love protection dogs. <laughs> hmm <laughs> You know, mm-hmm. about something that can be with you. And this, I really would love to figure out a way to create a class of service dog that is for protection dogs so that they identified and recognized officially. But this dog is with you. I mean, my dogs are usually with me. I don't have one right now because they're not allowed in business workspaces here. Uh, If you have a dog with you, that dog can react to a distant threat. It can react to a threat that like you can't see, but that is actually there. It can react to a threat that is right there in your face and it can buy you the time to get to one of your other tools if you need to. Absolutely. So, yeah, I am absolutely 100% in on people who have a reason to want to protect themselves <laughs> to have a protection mm-hmm. dog. You know, it's a big response. You've got to do the training and again, you have to you have to not just like play with the training. It has to be real. Yeah, absolutely. Just like with any other tool, right? It becomes a lifestyle change. You become invested in and you change the way you do things on purpose to keep yourself as safe as possible. Yeah. And I got to tell you, I don't sleep with a firearm under my pillow or, you know, a knife (laughs) bedside table, but I do sleep with two protection dogs in my room. Absolutely. Same here. (laughs) Same here. Absolutely. You know, I've I've got a five-year-old daughter. I don't have any type of weapons accessible to anyone or anything. However, I do have things set up so that I can obtain them quickly. And we do have our dogs trained in certain ways. They're not personal protection dogs, but they are loud and obnoxious and big so that if somebody were in my house, we would know very, very quickly. And that will help to at least buy us the time to get to the tools we need and put our plan into place. Because these are the things that we do on a regular basis is we have tabletop discussions and we run tabletop drills. Okay, it's nine o'clock at night, bang, somebody comes through the front door. What do we do? How do we escape? How do we do these things? And that has paid off very well to be able to just have those discussions. And sometimes we treat it like a game, especially with our daughter when she's around, we treat it like a game. But at other times when there have been credible threats, uh, you know, um, in my my career and in my husband's career as a corrections officer, we have run into people who know us and know our families outside of our jobs um, who have made threats, very credible threats. And so that's something that's always uh, on the forefront of our minds is, you know, how do we deploy a family protection plan as quickly as possible to make sure that everybody's safe. Um, and so we do, we do work through those scenarios as often as we can. And I highly encourage everybody else to do it. Yeah. You just brought up two humongously important pieces. One is by running through those sort of tabletop discussions, what you're doing is you're not just creating a plan, but you're also creating mental blueprints for like, if this is this happens, here's one way we could handle it. Here's what I could do. And that sort of gives your brain instant programming if something similar comes up. And that's that's a huge part of self-defense is just mm-hmm. what ifing and using your imagination and coming up with a lot of different options. Um, you know, it's like 
giving your brain software. Uh, but the other thing that you, the idea of sort of having layers of protection. And that's why all these different tools are appropriate at different ranges. There are some that are appropriate for some situations and some that are appropriate for others. And if you can navigate through your environment with multiple layers, then you have a much better chance of being able to make the choices that will work appropriately. You know, so if you have like a dog that will give you an alert, it may not be a dog that will eat somebody if they come through the door, but they can alert you that there's something going on. Or maybe that's a remote sensor on your property that sets off an alarm. You know, if somebody comes across your fence or opens your gate or breaks a window, something like that, you know, so you have that sort of peripheral range and then you just, you work it from the distant option closer and closer and closer till you get to that extreme close quarter, like in your face within your personal range. And yeah. uh, I think it's great to have multiple options that are appropriate for all those different different ranges and environments. Well, and I think involving your family is so important. One, I love to tell this story because it's so out of the realm of self-defense, but it's completely self-defense. We were at Costco. My daughter was about 18 months, right? My husband is armed. I'm not because at 18 months, she's in the middle of everything and all the whatever. So one part of our personal protection plan is whenever we go together as a family, both of us have keys to whatever vehicle we've been in. And we park in similar places. You know, I, I generally tell my students to think about the five places you frequent most often and, you know, think about where you park. Think about, you know, if you would be split up, what that would look like. Well, sure enough, we're checking out of Costco. And if anybody's ever been to Costco, you realize how quickly that uh, exit gets bundled up and backed up as they're checking out the receipts and all that other kind of stuff. Well, all of a sudden, alarms start going off throughout the entire store, right? Because of my background working at the hospital, I know that our particular Costco had had a couple of incidents that were uh, decontamination type situations. So as everybody else is staring up at the lights and looking at each other going, what's going on? Is this important? Do we need to know anything about what's going on? I was out the door because my role and responsibility was not to my husband, who is a full grown man who is armed. My responsibility is to my 18 month old daughter. And so I left him. I left the groceries because that was the plan that we had discussed. And so. By the time he made it out to us, which wasn't much longer, I was in the car, in the front seat, with the car started, waiting for him at the front door. That's because awesome. this is the plan we had had in place. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's, it is such a valuable investment of your time to do that kind of planning for potential situations. Because then you don't have to try to figure it out on the fly. Correct. And especially when the brain is under stress, uh, trying to figure out, you know, you, as we talked before, as soon as we're away from our baseline, that cognition starts to disintegrate. So to think that you're going to be able to figure out these situations while your brain is deteriorated in that moment is just unrealistic. So walking them through while the body is at baseline and we're calm without adrenaline, without fear, without stress, and being able to put together that blueprint and then take that blueprint to your family to walk your family through it so that everybody's on the same page. Right? If something should ever happen, it is so critically important that everybody knows that. Uh, an example that I use here locally, this happened about three years ago. Uh, we had an incident at one of our local Walmarts where we had an individual parked in an RV in front of the Walmart. He had multiple warrants out for his arrest. Law enforcement showed up to try and detain him. He started firing. He ended up shooting a canine 
that survived, thankfully. Um, but because he was so close to the front doors, they locked the entire Walmart down. And then they, of course, jammed all radio frequencies so that people couldn't use their cell phones. Well, we had people who were trapped and locked inside the Walmart, separated from their families for three hours because people didn't know where their families parked. They didn't know how to get a hold of their families. They didn't have a way to, to convene with their family members. And they were just wandering around Walmart trying to find each other while we had an active shooter situation happening just outside. So, you know, again, I, I highly encourage you to really think about the five places you most frequent and have an escape plan or meeting place and even key words so that everybody knows when it's time to leave. Oh, great, great tips there. Thank you. I'm curious, yeah. you said your daughter is five now. What have you taught her about and like, what do you think is most important for kids her age to not just be able to do, but to know? So for my daughter, she uh, is very feisty and has never met a stranger who is not her best friend. So um, (laughs) one of the first things we started teaching her is just simple observational skills. So we started off with games like I Spy. So we would wander through a store and she would spy maybe that guy with the smiley face t-shirt. And then every time she would see him again, she'd say, Mom, I see that guy again. Well, she didn't know it. But I pointed that guy out because he was very visibly intoxicated at 10 o'clock in the morning. So teaching my daughter how to identify and look for that person has been hugely powerful, uh, especially when trying to buckle her into vehicles. My back is turned. I know that oftentimes she's pointed out, hey, Mom, somebody's coming up behind you with a cart. So she's already looking and watching out. And she started learning how to take in the environment around her and start to address things that are closing distance. Now, obviously as to what to do with that, we're still working with her on that, but things like I spy have been huge. Also, we are teaching her from a very young age, the word no. You say more about that? Yeah. Um, you know, there are times that it's okay to say no. Right. So like, for example, uh, somebody wants to give her a hug. She says, no, thank you. <laughs> and we won't make her we won't forcefully ask her to hug anybody she doesn't want to. Somebody wants to take a toy that she has, it's okay to say no thank you. And when we tell her to finish dinner, we explain to her you need to finish your dinner and this is why. And if she says no thank you, right, then we can have further discussion. But we want her empowered to be able to use the word no, no thank you. Because oftentimes, and I know this was my my um, understanding and, and kind of the environment that I was raised in, is that sometimes no meant we got in trouble. <laughs> no meant, uh, you know, I wasn't being a good girl. No could mean a lot of different things. And so growing up, no became a source of uncomfortability for me to be able to use. And it's uh, kind of the case we see it through women all over the place. Uh, and so teaching our kids at a young age to be comfortable with saying no and putting up boundaries. She doesn't recognize she's putting up boundaries yet. She will at one point in time that saying no, that, you know, that doesn't work for me. No, thank you is the first step. If it goes beyond that, then she is, we've also worked on her uh, ability to understand when it needs to go to a grown up, right? Or sometimes on occasion, we've even taught her how to shout. Um, if you go to my, uh, my page, there's a, a ton of videos of her striking bags and hitting bobhead jelly no, stop, I don't know you. And she thinks she's a superhero. But like I said, really more more or less, as opposed to the physical skills, what we are teaching her is to, you know, be 
strong in that ability to say no and no thank you and recognize that that is a powerful tool that people need to listen to and abide by and that she is in charge of what she does and, and her own body to an extent obviously I'm mom so you know she does have to do things like eat her vegetables and take baths but she doesn't want to hug somebody she doesn't want to share a toy within reason she doesn't want to go do that with somebody that maybe she's not comfortable with she has the power to say no and it's a tightrope to walk but if I can focus in, my same with my husband, if we can focus in on what it is we're trying to teach her generally, we let that be our guide. And she's learning that no, no is her friend. No is okay to use. Oh, that's great. You know, I, I often say that the reason why I teach what I teach is because it is what we all should learn as we're growing up and very few of us do. And your daughter is one of the lucky ones who has parents who are willing and able to teach her what she needs to know right from the start. Thank you. <laughs> I, I think I want to clone you, but I'm definitely going to hit you up for further <laughs> conversations on teaching kids. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I mean, having kids is always, it's its own uh, learning experience and she has a mind of her own. So I, I tell people often, I'm kind of just the bumpers on the bowling alley, just trying to make sure that energy goes in the right direction some days. But uh, where I can sneak in some training, I am certainly going to do so. Yeah, that's awesome. So I just have a couple more questions and then we should probably wrap it up. Uh, although, okay. golly jeepers, I could talk to you forever. And <laughs> questions, so I have a bunch more, but I don't want to take advantage of your time. And I do want to give people the opportunity to actually listen to the whole podcast in one. <laughs> Always game for a part two. Yes. Well, we will definitely, because um, I do have some other things that have opened up just because we've been talking. So what are some of the must-know concepts and tools or strategies that you think that women need to have in order to not just feel safe, but actually be safe? Mm, that's an excellent question. And there are so many things that we can talk about. But the first one I would start off with is being able to address the level of dangerousness. And that goes back to knowing your use of force continuum. So I always make the joke, you know, somebody calls me a dirty name, so I pull out my gun and shoot them. Well, no, that doesn't, right? That doesn't work. That's not the same use of force, right? That's kind of a big jump and a, a big escalation of force there. So uh, generally to simplify, right, my lawyer friends are going to jump on me, but breathe, folks. I'm going to break it down simply into four categories that we generally use. And as a civilian, this is the easiest way to understand it. And first one being a verbal altercation. Verbals, right, are people calling each other names. They're shouting at each other. They may be making a threat, but there's nothing more than verbal happening. Uh, next would be more of a uh, physical, so maybe shoving or grabbing, right? But there are no strikes being thrown. Uh, and we've all seen this, right? Um, moving on to non-lethal. Now, non-lethal can be punches and knees and kicks and strikes and sparring and, you know, even deploying things like pepper spray or, or tasers. And then we move up to the lethal where we're deploying more lethal strikes like knees to the head or elbows to the back of the head or deploying a firearm or an edged weapon or something that is more lethal tool. So when you can recognize the level of danger. So like I said, somebody gives you a shove just because you have your concealed carry doesn't always justify that tool on your hip. So recognizing the level of dangerousness and then responding in kind if you can't escape the situation 
So, you know, most laws throughout the U.S. say that you can respond with equal force, uh, depending on the situation. Sometimes you can use greater force. Uh, it gets kind of sticky as we start talking about the different possibilities, especially female to male. But recognizing use of force is a big one. Being able to address that level of danger is the first step. From there, once you are engaged in that physical altercation, again, we're always looking to escape but I need to advantage my position. So I don't want to be squared up with somebody. I don't want somebody behind me, right? I want to advantage my position. If I'm on the ground, I'm looking for a way to advantage my position. If I'm in a really rough spot and I, I can't figure it out, I'm constantly working to find a better way to advantage myself. And then from there, lastly, again, always looking for that escape. It's always, we're trying to escape as quickly as we can. However, if we can't escape, we need to neutralize our attacker. And the quickest, most effective way to do that is generally by gaining control of the head. Right? So things like growing strikes can help not end a fight, but get the hips to move back to give us closer access to the head. But as soon as we can control the head, we can generally control where the rest of the body goes. And we want to unplug that computer as quickly as we can. Again, constantly looking to escape. So if you can follow just kind of those three steps, those three concepts, you can most oftentimes work yourself out of a lot of different situations. Oh, that's awesome. And the perfect, perfect encapsulation of a whole shit ton of information, but in a very quick and simple. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. We, that's kind of what we use a, a lot of the time to kind of give that broad concept because there's so much. And I mean, it, it works for firearms too. I mean, Again, you, ha you just because you have that tool on your hip doesn't mean that's the first thing you go to. You know, if you can escape the situation without ever drawing that, even better, right? Always, ego is always the enemy. Make sure to always check that, right? If you can escape that situation, walk the heck away. However, if it's a situation where you've tried to walk away and you can't escape, now you need to address that level of dangerousness. This person is violating your civil liberties. They're not allowing you to leave, right? So we know that at this point in time, this is at least physical. Now, we can change that real quick and that use of force continuum by saying, okay, same situation. I've tried to leave, but this person keeps walking in front of me. Now make that person your ex who you have a restraining order against who said the next time they see you, they were going to hurt you. Right now, we've just escalated that use of force. So recognizing that level of danger is is vastly important. Advantage your position, then attack the head. Uh, you know, uh, neutralize the threat. However, that means sometimes, a lot of times, it means attacking that head and looking for an escape. Perfect. Well, last question is: How do you think that women can develop their own personal power and courage? Ooh. I don't know. Let me see. There's there's a lot of great answers for that. Uh, but I think where it comes from first is self-love, right? That self-talk, that self-actualization, understanding that you are worth fighting for. You are, right? There's There are people out there that love you, right? You have to be comfortable in your own skin. You have to take the time to take care of you and recognize that you are wonderful. You're amazing, right? And if you don't think so, ask your family, ask your friends. I guarantee you they will think that you are absolutely worth fighting for, right? You are just wonderful and, and you are worth defending. So when you can get to the point of that self-love and that self-actualization, that understanding that your life is valuable and you are important to those around you and you would be very much missed by those people in your life, Right? It starts to change the way you value yourself. 
And so when it comes to those people who want to harm you or treat you poorly or violate your boundaries, you'll no longer tolerate it because you love you and you like you and you're willing to fight for yourself. And that's what's most important, if nothing else. Martial arts can give you a lot of confidence and that's fantastic, right? But make sure that it starts with you loving you. Well, damn, that's just like a mic drop moment right there. (laughs) That's awesome. I'm going to make sure that that is one of the audio clips that goes out when we publish this episode, because that is absolutely juicy and right on. So thank you for that. That I'm a firm believer of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, obviously that comes from pure conviction and also lived experience. That's it's clear that that is what your path has been as well. You know, you're not talking theory. Yeah. No, not at all. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, good heavens. Wow. Uh, my, my brain is just full, Sheena, and I have had such a great time talking with you. I know that listeners are going to want to follow up and, and follow you on social media and connect with you. So can you share like, where you are, how to find you, and, and how to connect? Yeah, if you just go to our website, which is crogsalem.com, you'll find all of our social media from our Facebook, our Twitter, our Instagram, our YouTube channel, where you can hear me talk more about some of the crazy stories that I've been involved in. I try often to do something called Short Stories Saturday with Sheena. It doesn't always happen just because my schedule is busy, but I try to, to share some of my crazy stories. Uh, I think the first one I ever put out was about the time I was nearly landed on by a helicopter in a snowstorm. <laughs> so um, there's, <laughs> I have tons of them. I could, I could go on for days and you guys have gotten a chance to listen to me tell a couple of them, but I try to put them out as often as I can. I've had the opportunity to be able to interview a lot of folks um, within the self-defense community. I'm trying to do more. Just uh, the last month has been a little crazy. I'll, I'll do more soon. But yeah, you can you can get a hold of me that way. For those of you who are interested in maybe doing uh, one-on-one coaching or more, uh, just reach out through our email or through our Facebook page, and we can set you up with a 30-minute discovery call where we can talk a little bit more about your goals and what that might look like. And I work with people who are interested in developing their martial arts businesses. I, I work with people motivationally and, and talk to them about journaling kind of the same way that Aaron does. And of course, I obviously work with people with firearms and self-defense and that kind of stuff. So I'm very passionate about it. I, I would like to see, you know, domestic violence, sexual assault and trafficking uh, completely eradicated from this earth. And if I can l- lean my expertise toward that, uh, you know that I'm going to. Oh, awesome. Well, we will get all of your contact info in the show notes as well. So uh, people can find that if they didn't write things down as you were speaking. This is just awesome. So thank you, Sheena, for coming on the show. This has been so much fun and very educational. It's been great. Well, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. This is the Born to be a Badass podcast. Stay safe and be a badass. You've been listening to the Born to be a Badass podcast, the groundbreaking show that shines the light on women, violence and safety, life after trauma and how to build personal power and courage. Be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss a single episode and share it with your friends, family members and colleagues. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review that will help our show reach more women around the world. Tune in regularly for more exciting conversations full of insights and wisdom you won't hear anywhere else. And until next time, embrace your inner badass.